Martin. If you would please take out your Bible and turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2 is where we'll be here in just a moment. Colossians chapter 2. And uh, we'll read uh, here in just a moment in verses 6 and 7. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As we think this quarter of being rooted and grounded in Christ, there are a number of different ways that we might think about and apply that concept. But imitation of Christ is certainly one of those aspects. The need to imitate, emulate, and put on Jesus in all things is clearly paramount to the Christian life. But what does it really mean to imitate Jesus? Stop and think about it. In lots of ways, we are nothing like Jesus. He is perfect. We are not. He is all-powerful. We are not. He is all-knowing. We are not. He is all-loving. We are not. He is perfectly just. We are not. Even in many of the things that he did while he was on earth, there is no hope of us really imitating us. We ask a question, what did Jesus do or what would Jesus do? Well, he worked all kinds of miracles. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cast out demons. He calmed the storm. He walked on water. And I can do none of those things. What would Jesus do? He read the hearts of men. He spoke as one having all authority because he had all authority. And most incredibly, he forgave sins. And I can't do any of that. No, there are many areas where we simply cannot imitate Jesus. But there are some ways that we can, where we should all be walking like Jesus. And it is some of those areas that I want us to think about for just a few minutes this morning. Um, thank you for being here. We appreciate the presence of all, and I know that there are some who are visiting with us. We're glad that you're here as well. And, and what better thing could we do this morning than consider for a few moments our Savior, what He was like, what He did, and what we need to do in order to be like Him. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 6 that we should walk as he walked, in referring to Jesus, that we should walk as Jesus walked. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And the concept is the same. We imitate Christ's walk. We imitate his life. And among many here recently, both Christians and non-Christians alike, there is a renewed interest in imitating Jesus that focuses on what Jesus did in a literal, physical sort of way. The, the way of Jesus, the walk of Jesus. And, and by that they mean some, some changes in our lives in terms of our routine and our habits. The idea of making time for solitude and prayer. Finding regular time to rest and recharge. Having few possessions and, and things like that. And no doubt there is a real benefit in those sort of external changes in our lives, but I'm afraid if that's what we think of when we think of imitating Jesus, we're really putting the cart before the horse. Shouldn't we start our examination and imitation of Jesus' walk by focusing on the why instead of the what? By thinking of His walk in terms of His purposes, His goals, and His direction. Notice what Paul says 
here in Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And, and this is where we get this idea of being rooted and grounded in Christ. Verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. We are rooted so that then we can be built up in Christ Jesus. And we are receiving Jesus, and so that reception should be manifested in the way that I live my life. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And if you're a Christian here this morning, if you believe in Christ, if you have made Him your Lord, the Lord of your life, that He is your Savior, that He is the Son of God, and you've put Christ on in baptism right? That you've received Him into your life. That should be manifested in the way you walk, in the way that you live your life. And we see that, I think, even more if we drop down to chapter 3 in verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, not literally, but spiritually. You put to death who you used to be. You died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. So this idea of our walk changing, our lives changing, begins with this idea that we put to death who we used to be, we've been raised to walk in newness of life, and so if we were raised with Christ, we're supposed to be changing our purpose and our direction and our goals. We are setting our mind on things above. And that's not just that we think about good things and we think about uh, spiritual things, our focus and our intent and our purpose in our walk is focused on these things that are above. And now our life, who we are, is hidden with Christ in God. You want to know what my life's about? You need to look at Jesus. And I'm going to strive to live my life the way He lived His life. This is the purpose in verses 1 through 4. And then what we find beginning in verse 5, going all the way through chapter 4 and verse 6, we see the practical application of that in the life of every Christian. This is what the walk looks like. And it's manifested in uh, the purity of our life, the change in our life, that we don't do sinful things anymore. But it's not just that we don't do sinful things. Our, our character has changed where we do good things. We, we love one another and we bear with one another and we have peace with one another. It's manifested in our worship. The way we worship God and do all things in His name and we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with grace in our heart to Him. It's manifested, if you keep looking at the end of chapter 3, in our roles. And the different roles that we had likely before we were Christians as husbands and wives and servants and masters and parents and children. It's manifested in those roles in our walk. Our way of life is going to change in those roles. And it's manifested as well in the way that we speak in chapter 4. It's manifested in the way others look at us and our influence on other people. And all of it is summed up with this idea that we walk in wisdom in chapter 4 and verse 5. 
But all of that begins with a change in our purpose, a change in our direction. And if your purpose is clear, then your walk will be clear. Your walk will be according to that purpose, right? You know, there are two kinds of walks, uh, and I think these are illustrated well maybe with my children, but uh, I won't go down that road. I'm, I've, I'm, you know, I've been beaten back a little bit by the meeting and being used as an example like 67 times. You know, maybe I shouldn't do that. But we see this idea of, of two kinds of walks, right? Um, just in, in physical terms. There is the meander, right? You know the meander? You know people like this, you know? I do have a child like this, and it's always, come on, come on, come on. And those people probably enjoy life a little more, but there is no purpose. There is no purpose to that work, right? that walk. The other kind of walk is the tractor beam. You know the one I'm talking about. Somebody sets their sights, their eyes on something, and they go right there, and they're not going to be stopped for anything in the world. They're going straight to their purpose. I mean, that's about to play out right now here in just a few minutes. Whenever this service is over, you got those two kinds of people. you got the kind of people who's meandering and says hi to this person and talks for a little bit, meanders over here and says hi to this person for a little bit. And then you've got the other person, they've got to give something to somebody or uh, they've got something that they're supposed to be doing there in the back or whatever the case might be. Or maybe they're just, you know, they're ready to go and lunchtime is here and so they walk with purpose, right? And so they're going to go, hey, I can't talk right now, i got to go, i got to go. If we have purpose, it impacts our walk. In fact, in a physical sense, where do, we, where do we look when we're walking? We don't look down at our feet, at least not usually, maybe when we're going down steps or something, but if we're just walking, we're looking at where it is we're trying to go. So our purpose, our purpose must be set correctly if our walk is going to be correct. And we can make all sorts of superficial, artificial, physical changes in our life and say, well, I need to change this little thing over here and I need to change this little thing over here. But until our purpose changes, until our direction and our goals change, we will never really be truly able to imitate Jesus. Not until our purposes and our goals and our directions align fully and totally with His. So, the question is just begging to be asked. You know, I say that sometimes, and it's maybe that's not really begging. It's like, okay, that's a good question. But isn't this question begging to be asked? If I am supposed to be imitating Jesus' purpose and goals and directions, the question begging to be asked is, what were Jesus' purposes and goals and direction while on this earth? Why did Jesus come? What were his goals? And we don't have to guess about those things. We don't have to decide for ourselves, well, what about his walk was important and wasn't? Do I need to find time for solitude and go up on a mountain? Because that's what Jesus did, and absolutely he did that. Is that something essential for my Christian life or not? Well, the question comes back to, how does it relate to his purposes and goals and directions? What things do I really need to focus on imitating him? He tells us, It's all recorded for us to read for ourselves. And I beseech you this morning to hear Jesus in His own words as we seek to imitate Him. This is why Jesus said that He came. And I'm not intending to have an exhaustive list this morning, but a good thorough representation of the passages where Jesus says, 
This is why I came. This is why I'm here. This is why the Father sent me. And if we learn to have Jesus' purposes, everything else in our imitation of His walk will fall into place. Right? I believe that it will. So, what were Jesus' purposes while on earth? Jesus' purpose was, first of all, to do the will of the Father. Turn to John chapter 6, if you would. John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is at the height of His popularity. He would perhaps never be more popular than what He is at the beginning of this chapter. He has fed thousands of people. He has worked hundreds of miracles. He has given dozens of sermons and people just flock to Him like He's a celebrity. Read the Gospel of Mark sometimes. Jesus was a big, big, big deal even before they knew He was the Son of God. But here in chapter 6, things get a little sideways in terms of popularity. And for the first time, followers of Jesus start leaving Him in droves instead of coming to Him in droves because of the difficult things that He says in this chapter. And it relates to His purpose. In John chapter 6, let's read together in verse 38. Start in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's monumental, isn't it? Here is why I came down from heaven. Now that is a loaded, off-handed statement, isn't it? But the Jews didn't miss what Jesus was saying in that. In verse 41, the Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They would not have had a big problem with Jesus calling Himself the bread of life. Maybe it's a little weird. Maybe they didn't get the image, whatever the case might be. Their issue was not with the, the bread thing. The issue was with the heaven thing. He came down from heaven. And they said, whoa, wait a second. Who does this guy think he is? Coming down from heaven means that he was in heaven. That he is God. And so they heard that and they didn't like it. And they grumbled because he put his origin there. But Jesus powerfully says that my direction in all things is to do the will of him who sent me. Isn't that so simple? Break it down in practical terms. That means that Jesus did not have his own agenda. His own hidden purposes. Jesus didn't have his hang-ups and his soapboxes against his Father's will. He wasn't making sure that he got his in every situation. He was giving up himself, all his rights, all his will, and willingly, do you hear that? Willingly, by choice, submitted himself to the Father. His Father's will became his will. He wasn't putting his own will in there and his father's in there as some 50-50 split. It wasn't even a 90-10 split, as can be the case sometimes in our lives as Christians, that we have one thing that we hold back. His will is to do the will of the Father in all things. That's why he came down from heaven. And he isn't begrudging about any of it. It fulfilled him and it sustained him to do his Father's will. Will. If you go back to John chapter 4 and verse 30, uh, this is just after Jesus has the interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well. And you remember Jesus was alone on that occasion, and why was he alone? 
because his disciples had gone into the town to get food. They didn't have any food. And so if we read there in John chapter 4 and verse 30, we see that the disciples come back. Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? I mean, did you bring him something to eat? No. Did you bring him something to eat? Jesus said to them, I'm not talking about physical food. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I think there's a perspective change we need sometimes when it comes to doing the will of the Father. Um, There have been times in my life, I will freely admit, I did the will of God because that's what I had to do, because he told me to do it, but I did not want to. I did so begrudgingly. I did so, and it took a lot out of me, right, to make this choice to do what God wants me to do, even though that's not what I want to do. And, you know, that's better than, I suppose, not doing God's will. Um, It's always better to obey, even if our heart isn't in it. But what does Jesus say here? What sustained him? What gave him energy instead of taking energy away? My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Like the effect of physical food on our bodies, so is doing God's will from a pure heart for our souls. Instead of taking something away from us, it should add something to us. It should give us strength and energy. Jesus says, here is my nourishment. I know I am doing the will of my Father in heaven. And the more we do God's will, the easier it becomes to do more of God's will. Doing the will of our Father should energize us, not weary us. It should comfort and fulfill us and fill us up, not restrict us and empty us. It is for our ultimate spiritual good always. And what was the Lord's will for him? Verse 35, do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white. For harvest. The second purpose, reason why Jesus came. Jesus' purpose was to seek and save the lost. We see that here in John chapter 4, but I want you to turn over to Luke chapter 19, where it is even more clearly connected with his purpose. Luke chapter 19. Beginning in verse 7. Luke chapter 19. My dad read from this when he was here. This is Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And Jesus goes into his house, and when they, the Pharisees and scribes, saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said, To him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
Uh, Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, Paul was the chiefest of sinners. Maybe you're somewhere below that, but whatever kind of sinner you are, Christ came to save you. And it's amazing how many of the things, when Jesus says, this is what I came to do, this is my purpose, it's amazing how many of the other things that he says relate directly to this idea of seeking and saving the lost. But sometimes we lose sight of this, among many other good and noble things, in terms of our purpose in imitating Jesus' walk. Would I describe my life, my purpose, my direction, my goals to seek and save the lost. Is that what my life is about? My life is consumed with many good things and noble things, but is it consumed with this? And then we remember that this is what we're supposed to be doing, and and maybe sometimes we're, we're flooded with guilt because of that, and it discourages us, but... I want to suggest this morning, instead of some guilt-based evangelism where we're shamed into doing something, let's aim for purpose-based evangelism. This is why I'm here. I'm looking to see who may be lost to give them the opportunity to be saved. In every relationship that I have, I'm seeking to save the lost. That might be with my children. might be with my family might be with my coworkers, might be with my friends. In every relationship, I'm seeking to save the lost. How? Well, again, there are things that Jesus did that I can't do. I haven't lived a perfect life as some perfect example to them. I can't be an atoning sacrifice for their sins. I can't read the hearts of people, and I do not have the power to forgive sins. But notice some things that Jesus did in regard to seeking and saving the lost that I can do and that you can do too. Jesus says, in regard to seeking and saving the lost, that he came to judge others. John chapter 9 and verse 39, For judgment I have come into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. I came into the world to judge, he says. And this is after healing a man who was born blind. Judge others? Absolutely we're supposed to judge others. I'll say that again. We are supposed to judge others. But don't misunderstand me. I can't judge in the same sense of Jesus, of judging their eternal destiny. I will leave all of that in the hands of God. God will save whom He wills and condemn whom He wills. But there is a sense in which some judgments are required of me in regard to other people. And we know all of the passages. The passages are very well known and often quoted that I can't be hypocritical in my judgment. I can't be hypercritical in my judgment. Judge not that you be not judged. We know all of those things. But there is another sense in which I am called to judge others. To examine the deeds of people around me against the standard of God's Word using righteous judgment. And we have to make judgments. Because that is the only way we can seek and save the lost. The lost. Say it one more time. The lost. You know what that is? That's a judgment. And I don't know in an absolute sense, with absolute certainty, who is lost. But I have to judge based on the standard of God's Word so that I can go to those who may be lost and share that Word with them. I mean, isn't that 
Isn't that what we want professionals to do all the time, to just make their best judgment on things? And, and we don't expect, well, maybe sometimes we do, but we shouldn't expect absolute certainty. You think about a doctor, for example. If we went to the doctor and there was something wrong, and we came to him and, he said, and we said, well, you know, this is what's happening, this is what's going on, and he says, well, mm, I don't know with absolute certainty, so I'm not going to say anything. What? That's why I came. Give me your best shot. Give me your best judgment as to what you think might be going on. And he's like, well, I only know with like 90% confidence that this might be what's going on. 90%? Tell me. I want to know. And so too with us. Maybe we don't know with absolute certainty, but if we suspect based on someone's life, based on their deeds, and by their deeds we will know them, based on their deeds we suspect someone might not be right with God, then we need to make that judgment if we are going to seek and save the lost. And the fact of the matter is, oftentimes we have a better idea about someone's spiritual condition than doctors have about physical condition. And so... Based on this judgment, like Jesus, his purpose was to judge others so that he might call sinners to repentance in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. Uh, The case in point of what he said in John chapter 9 is this, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come the righteous, the self-righteous, those who think they have no need of salvation, but sinners to repentance. Who is the perfect candidate to receive the gospel? It is not the person who is self-righteous and believes they don't need to be saved. It is the sinner. But they cannot stay that way. They must repent if salvation is to be found in the life of a sinner. Uh, Thinking about doctors again, what is the purpose of a well visit? A well visit? Anybody in here ever had a well visit? Anybody in here ever got their teeth cleaned? That would be a well visit, right? It's, it's maintaining, right? Things are going well. I don't have any sickness in my life, but, but I'm just checking in to make sure that things are good. Um, well visits have their purpose. They have their place, um, especially if you uh, need to get your eyes checked every uh, year, six months, how often? Year? Once a year? Once a year, get your eyes checked. But that's not really when we need the doctor the most. And the fact of the matter is, we aren't all that motivated to see the doctor at those times either. When we're well, when things are good, what do we do? Uh, We have one on the calendar, it's scheduled, and we say, well, this is not a good time for that. Let's call him up and kick the can down the road another three months or six months or a year. But if we're sick, I mean really, really sick, we call and say, when's your next appointment? That's not good enough. I need to come now. There is that urgency. And I mean this question, I hope you accept it in the spirit that it is asked. Are we just well-visit-only doctors? Can you imagine that? We go into our doctor, I'm sick, doc, I'm bad, sick. Well, let me refer you to one of those doctors who accepts sick patients, uh, and you'll get an appointment with them. I only do well visits, no sick people. Uh, I don't like sick people that much. I only do well people. That's not what a doctor does. But what about us spiritually? Do we only seek out to treat those who are already well? 
the righteous, even in terms of the vitally important work that we have of coming together with those who have been saved to encourage one another and build one another up in Christ, that's vitally important work. But is that all that we do and nothing more? Are we seeking to save those who are just kind of sick? You know, I want to give them some ibuprofen and send them on their way in the world as if there is such a thing. You're either sick or you're well in terms of the gospel. Brethren, we are called to be physicians under the great physician. Let's go out and seek the sick and call sinners to repentance. How did Jesus go about doing that? Well, he says that his purpose was to bear witness to the truth. Turn to John chapter 18. This is when he is uh, before Pilate. In John chapter 18. And in verse 36, Pilate's like, Hey, what have you done? Why are you here? And Jesus answered verse 36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, so that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. And Pilate therefore said to him, he got the implication, right? He drew the necessary inference. Ah, you have a kingdom, so you are a king then. Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause... I have come into the world. Here's his purpose. That I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. We live in a world with so many voices. And sometimes the ones that are heard most clearly are the ones who shout the loudest. But we are not called to shout in that way In a world filled with error, we are called to simply tell the truth. And there are some people who need and are looking for that truth so desperately. He says bear witness. We usually think about a jury when we think about someone bearing witness in a court of law. Uh, Anybody in here ever been on a jury? Um, Stephanie's been on them like three or four times. I think she's like the perfect candidate to be a juror. So you've been on a jury. If you're sitting there in the jury and they're bringing these witnesses, what do you want? What do you want from those people? You just want them to do what? Just tell me the truth. Tell me the truth and then I can make a judgment based on what you say. Tell me the truth and I'm able to make a determination from that truth what needs to happen next. And and so many people in this world need that. I can make my own determination if I know what is true. To answer Pilate's question with the objective standard by which all things might be judged. Pilate said, well, what is truth in response to him in verse 38? And maybe that's the way some respond. But other people will say, that's truth. And hearing that truth, finally I know what it is that I'm supposed to do. So we need to bear witness to the truth. And that means that we must preach the gospel. Mark chapter 1 and verse 38 says, Let us go into the next towns, Jesus says, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come. Uh, And when he introduces his ministry in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue in his hometown there in Nazareth, that's basically what he says in reading from the gospel of Isaiah, that he came to preach, to preach this good news to those who needed to hear it. And so too for us, our job is to preach the gospel as well. 
And preaching is something that goes beyond our lives and examples. We have to open our mouths, not in a pulpit, but open our mouths at work. Open our mouths at the kids' baseball game. Open our mouths in the car to our children. Open our mouths at Thanksgiving dinner to our family who are lost. Open our mouths whenever the opportunity arises. And and this point specifically is only for some of us in here. All of us must open our mouths. But if you're here this morning, you say, oh yeah, I got this one. I'm ready. This point really isn't for you. Maybe there's a different point about, hey, be careful about opening your mouth. The Bible talks a lot about that. I was talking to a brother not too long ago, uh, and he works closely with a man and a woman at his job. The three of them have been on a number of projects together. They've worked together for a number of years. And one of those uh, people, the woman, very moral person, you know, likes her and so forth. The other guy, he likes too. But this guy, he called him an aggressive agnostic. He really doesn't know whether he believes in God or not, but he wants to push all of the buttons, you know. Uh, He wants to ask all of the questions. And so the three of them working together, there have been lots of discussions between this man, the brother in Christ, and this agnostic. And, And the agnostic will ask a question, he'll answer from the Bible and say, this is what Christians believe. And for a number of years, that's taken place. Here just recently, this brother told me, The lady with whom he works, this moral person, she asked him to come to her office. And he came and sat down and she said, you know, I've been listening to y'all's discussions for months and months and months. I just wanted you to know I'm a Christian too. He was like, whoa, what? And that was exciting to him. And they talked about where they went to church and made all these connections and all these things. This point is for her. And people like her. Living a good life. Very moral. But nobody knows that you're a servant of the King Most High. And no doubt some of that is personality, right? For some of us it's harder to open our mouths than others. But Jesus' purpose was to preach the gospel. And we share in that purpose, in that that dying need to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to people whenever the opportunity arises. This is not something artificial that we're drumming up ourselves. The opportunity, we're looking and praying for the opportunity and when it arises, we have the courage to open our mouth and proclaim our Lord. Jesus says, let us go. Wherever we are, there is probably someone who needs Jesus. And could it be difficult? Absolutely. Could it offend some? Sure, that is likely. Not because we are rude or condescending or holier than thou. No Christian ever has a right to be that way, but because of the very nature of what we are preaching. Because the very purpose of Jesus is not to make people feel comfortable. He says His purpose was to bring a sword, a sword of choice. If you turn to Matthew chapter 10, this is the nature of his message. It is one of hope, it is one of love, it is one of grace, but it is one also of choice. In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. These are one of those not but constructions. 
Did Jesus come to bring peace on earth? Of course he did. But what was his primary purpose? Was his primary purpose to bring peace on earth? He says, I did not come to bring peace on earth. I do not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, quoting from the Old Testament, daughter against his mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. Here it is. This is the cost necessary, but it is worth it. And and I'll tell you, in recent years, I have focused more and more on this point, not bringing a sword against people, but bringing people to the step of choice. I want everyone to know enough to know two things. Number one, that there is a choice, that a choice must be made in their lives between Jesus and the world. Number two, I want everyone to know enough to make that choice. I can't make the choice for them. Uh, As our text back there in Colossians says, as you have received Jesus Christ the Lord, nobody else can receive him for you. That's a choice that you must make. But I want everyone to have that choice and know the choice that is before them. Jesus came that they might have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 10 and verse 10, he says, That's why I have come, that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. And honestly, that's the way I should live my life. I should live my life knowing that I have purpose and peace and joy and contentment and others will see that abundant life in me, in this life and the life to come. So, Jesus' purpose was to do the will of the Father, to seek and save the lost in all these ways. I know I tricked you with the three points, and there's a bunch of them, but I've got one more. Jesus' purpose was to serve, to give his life for others. Randy mentioned this as we were partaking of the Lord's Supper. If you turn back to Mark chapter 10, Mark chapter 10 and verse 42, Mark chapter 10, This is the occasion uh, recorded, I think, in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, certainly in Mark and Matthew, when James and John come and say, hey, we want to sit on your right hand and left hand in the kingdom. In fact, we learn from Matthew's account they sent their mother to ask him that. But in verse 42, Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them. We've probably all had a boss like that who lords it over us. And their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served. That was not my purpose in coming so that all of you would serve me. But to serve, that's my purpose in coming, to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
This is what Jesus came to do. And yet over and over the apostles missed that point. They missed this idea that that the greatest in the kingdom is the one who served. That's your purpose as a citizen in this kingdom. And remember he resorts on the night of his betrayal and arrest, he resorts to this vivid image of washing their feet. And after he finishes, he asks them a, a powerful question. He says, do you understand what I do to you? Do you understand this image of what I've just done in washing your feet? Now that's a question Jesus asked all the time in his ministry. He was always asking, do you understand in the Gospels? And usually he asked that on occasions when people had no idea. The answer was, no, I, I don't understand. And Jesus asked this question, not because it's just so obvious to everybody. He asked this question to prompt them to think. Do you get it? Do you understand what I've done in washing your feet? To get them to start seeking the right answer. To get them to sit up and listen. Do you understand what he has done? How could they fully understand How can we? This is God in the flesh taking the lowest position. He left heaven to wash feet. I don't have the capacity to understand that. But I do have the capacity to understand this. If he gave himself in service to others, how can I do anything less? That was his purpose, to give himself in service to others. And I am not greater than him, so surely I should do the same. Give myself with my family, with my brethren, with my enemies, with those who are under my authority, I am a servant. Not just with those who are over me, who have authority over me. I'm already kind of in a servant relationship already with them. No, I am a servant to those who are under my authority just as Jesus was. This was his purpose. This was his direction. These were his goals. What if? What if these three things, to do the will of the Father, to seek and save the lost, to serve and give our lives for others, what if these things were our purposes, provided our life with direction, was what motivated us to live the way that we lived and is our goal for our life. We would walk like Jesus. We would imitate Him. And maybe you say it's not that simple, and I say, why not? Imitate Christ's purpose, and everything else will fall into place according to God's design. And you say, well, there's a lot more in there. Yeah, absolutely. What's number one? To do the will of the Father. If that's my purpose and direction in life, I'm going to get into this book and say, well, what is the will of the Father? That's what I need to do. I'm going to get into this book and say, well, how do I seek and save the lost? What is it that I need to communicate to someone that they might be persuaded to obey the gospel? And how is it that I can serve in the roles that I've been given in my life as I've been called? And know this, that your peace and joy and fulfillment will come from this. Your You'll live the way you should in regard to sin and temptation. Your physical relationships with your spouse, with your siblings, with your parents, with your children, with your grandparents, whatever. 
are more likely to prosper. Your physical needs will be taken care of. Just imitate Christ. Walk like Him. And everything else will fall into place. And so here's what I ask you to do at the end of our lesson this morning. Two things. Number one, I want to encourage you when you get up in the morning, and uh, most of us pray at some point in the morning, maybe first thing in the morning. In that first prayer, I want you to pray for this. Lord, help me to imitate your Son by knowing and remembering my purpose. May I seek to do your will in all things. May I constantly be looking to seek and save the lost. And please give me the strength to serve others with my life. Pray for those three things. And then number two, seek those three things the whole day. And the next, and the next, and the next, until you are walking like Jesus. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you have the opportunity to put Christ on to receive the Lord so that then you can walk in Him. And if you're already a Christian and you need help with that walk, God has given you others who are trying to walk in the same way to uphold you, to help you, and that's exactly what we can do for you this morning. If you'll come now, while together we stand and while we sing.